Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Here at the Elite Game Developers Podcast, we are celebrating another year of podcasting. So this year I put out 36 new podcast episodes and I spoke to founders and investors from all over the globe who are all working to build great gaming companies. Now I want to do this special episode at the end of the year where I share my favorite highlights from the year. The first clip is from the episode from this spring with Eitan Reisel from V Games and how he picks companies to invest in. How do you make investment decisions at the early stage when usually there is no numbers, maybe even often not really a good prototype even? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the trivial answer would be, of course, team. But let me double click on that for a second, because I think, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's value knowledge. So when we look at teams, one, it doesn't have to be experience in games. And I think that's an important factor. Like a lot of our very successful founders haven't worked in Playtick or Moon Active before, and they're still amazing. So this may sound silly, but it's important to me that there are folks who play a lot, like gamers, on especially in the genres that they want to build. I think you know this better than I do. You know, it's hard to build good products today. And you have to explore an experience, right? So one, that's an important factor. I think the second factor is that they have, you know, I don't like the word aggressive, but it's a little bit aggressive. It's an aggressive world. You have to be, you know, you have to chase the opportunities. You have to fight, you know, because, because that's, you know, we're in a very crowded world. You know, we're marketing is very expensive. You have to be very unique. So that's the second pillar. The third pillar, you know, if they, if they did take a product to the world, if it's a game or not, I think that's an important factor. You know, taking a product from zero to something for me is more important than taking it from $10 million to $500 million in revenue. I think it's skill set or talent set. And the third and the fourth and maybe the most important component, you know, if you asked me four years ago or when I was more of an angel investor, you know, a lot of the founders, especially in games that we look at, it's like, folks, how big are you? How strong are you in product? Today, marketing is not less important. You can build amazing products and you won't be able to deliver them because if you don't understand the landscape of marketing. So the combination of marketing and product today is, is significantly more important, even to when I started V-Games. Like it, it increased, you know, re- literally every month, like IDFA changes and stuff like that. Like it doesn't mean that you have to be the number one marketeer, but I want you to see how they think marketing, like they think about the product and the technology behind it. And for me, that's super critical. Yeah, so it's it's team. And then the last layer is even if it's a very, very early stage, I want to understand what category they're chasing. Is it big enough? Do I believe that there's a big opportunity? We have a component where we said we want to invest in game companies that we believe that with one or two products, they can reach a million dollars a day in revenue. So, you know, they're not too niche or, you know, really a blend of, 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 Big opportunities or not overcrowded, like we haven't done hyper casual investments. Not because I don't think it's big industry. I just don't understand how you can revolutionize it in a way where you have, you know, these giants dominating the buy and sell side. It's funny to say we're the land of social casino. We haven't done social casino investments. Average CPIs today, I think, are $25. You know, you have to really build something unique in that angle. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, of course. But but yeah, but but category is number two, right? It's of course because you know doesn't mean that the first game that they're working on is going to be the last game that's going to be you know the giant. And we're privileged there. We've really backed amazing entrepreneurs. How do you support the founder when there's like an idea that hey this we need to leave it we need to get out of the business that where we were before like have you have you been in those situations that have have you thought about like how the aggressiveness about doing the pivot like plays in and things like that yeah i think it's it's a very important question for the gaming industry specifically so i think there are two components as game investors that not all get one when we're building games especially you know game studios we're building content At the end of the day, our drive is content that people will love. And with all the respect, that's all we're building, right? Because you can build good monetization, good, you know, all these funny words. But we have to build, you know, if you're seeing a Netflix series and you're seeing episode one and you want to move on to episode, it has to be good content, right? And it takes time. So one, there has to be patience. You can't, you know, there aren't any, okay, one, two, three, boom, we're out, right? You need patience. You want a good, good cohort. You need patience to see retention over time. You know, you do an update to see the 30 and 60 day impact. It's going to take two months and there's no way to shorten that. So I think in one hand, it's important to have patience. On the contrary of that, we have to be brave enough to say we haven't hit here. Let's make sure we don't run out of capital and we try other things, right? And we're not going to push our founders to do that. We'll challenge them why they still believe in what they're building. Right, we'll challenge with difficult questions. Sometimes we may be aligned on the answers. Sometimes, and of course, we find you know, of course, that happened to me. And I don't think there's a game investor who's going to be transcending the world that didn't say it happened to him ten times because that's the world we're living in. And to the next clip, uh, where I talk with Carolyn Krenzer, who's the co-founder and CEO of Trail Mix, we talk about the ups and downs making a hit game like Love and Pies and what changes the team needed to make in order to get the game out in into a success. So we pushed a prototype actually pretty far until we actually put it into quantitative testing and we did a lot of qualitative testing throughout you know like the sort of like the prototype period and everything was really positive and people around us told us that You know, it's great. It's super fun. And then we put it into Quantest and it completely bombed. <laughs> we were very confused by that because we really expected that, you know, like the first thing that we put out after a year into the life of the company is going to take off immediately, which I don't even know why we thought this, <laughs> yeah. but, but it didn't. And so I think that that caused us to kind of like, whoa, step back a little bit and just really, you know, look at the way we're doing things and sort of like, you know, check our assumptions and also remind ourselves that actually you do need user feedback as quickly as possible because that is the only way to understand if your game is going to work or not. And so we then effectively moved into a process of pivoting and iterating and constantly changing things and we, we kind of said that love and pies is actually really five games in one game because you know like the the 
because we had just so many different changes and so many different iterations. And for example, we, we did completely change the meta, how the meta is structured and how the meta works. We changed the storylines three times until we found something that really works and resonates with the audience. We uh, tested four different core mechanics to really find the one that, that did the best. And so, so yeah, we just, we, we tried out so many things. And I guess the, the biggest downs, I guess we experienced were really when we thought that the change that we made was amazing and a major change to the game to then only realize that it had no impact whatsoever. It just didn't move the needles. And so I guess like, you know, then kind of like picking yourself up again, say, okay, this didn't work. Let's try something different. Like something is going to work. We just have to keep sort of like the, the motivation and the drive high and, and just keep trying until we find something that works. That, that's actually very interesting idea of how far can you actually push things like having that belief that you know eventually you will find the thing that works is it you're not pivoting you're sort of keeping part of the existing things that you've already built but making major changes how scary was that and how sure you were actually that you're doing the right things there it's a good question i think some part of we were very sure about others not so much but i guess we did feel there were a few elements of it that we felt we understood why they don't work, if that makes sense, right? So I think as long as you're not clueless about, you know, like, you know, why why did this not work? And we were 100% sure it works. As long as you kind of see sort of, you know, and even if it's after you get the data, when that realization comes, you know, as long as you see sort of the next steps that you can, where you can really truly have an impact and you see a glimmer of something that does work, then it's worth moving forward. For example, what what was quite interesting for us is that our our belief was always that a really strong storyline is going to, is going in itself, is going to have a major impact on retention, right? But we didn't actually know that, right? It was just a strong belief and a feeling that we, that we, had. And so we iterated on the story three times, completely rewrote it. And the third time when we when we tested it again, it actually did increase our retention by 10 percentage points. And we could we could feel as a team, we had more fun creating the story because um, that's a story that we have in a game now, which is kind of like we, we call it cozy telenovela, very much about, you know, like mystery, trauma, romance, but just creating the storyline was just so much fun for us. We just had a feeling we were onto something. And then seeing that it has such a drastic impact on retention. I think that, you know, like we use those little steps to sort of like verify our assumptions. And then once we had figured that out and that works, then we could focus on other areas of the game that we iterated on and changed. And so it's kind of, it's like taking different, you know, like puzzle pieces and you just try to put them all together in different variations. And once, you know, one puzzle piece fits, you're just trying out sort of like the the next puzzle piece, if that makes sense. Then we go to this mind blown episode with Andrew Shepard. I think it's one of the episodes that I still go back to most often to hear all the insights from this discussion with Andrew. Um, Here's a bit where we discuss about the patterns of seeing more big games companies emerge. 
If you haven't listened to the full episode, I really do recommend that you go back to the Springs timeline and try to find that episode. I want to see more big companies actually turn up versus like not too much M&A at the early stage. In Finland, for instance, there's been in the last decade, I would say like 10 different big acquisitions, but it's been really hard. We only have Rovio that is independent in Finland out of the big companies. Most of them been acquired versus going public. What are your thoughts on like evolving that or does it need to evolve? Does it matter? I think it does. I actually just published a, a piece on this a little while back on LinkedIn in our blog. When Shanti and I were working together at Gree as operators, I was pushing a cross-platform strategy. This was 2015. It was before Fortnite. And I remember a lot of people just didn't see it. They didn't believe in it. It was perhaps too early. But my thought process around it was, you know, the audience for games, specifically younger millennials and Gen Z, they don't view platforms the way that Gen X does. And what, what I mean there is they want to play a game like Fortnite and they will use whatever devices is closest to them to get to it, right? It's not like they're going to move down the hall to load their Xbox or their PlayStation or go to their bedroom to launch their PC. If the phone is right next to them, they're going to play it. And there really won't be a discernible impact on their gameplay because they're device agnostic. And that core understanding around the audience, which was informed by market research, led me to conclude that franchises that were cross-platform would become incredibly valuable, right? And since then, that thought process has evolved to realizing that in the land grab for franchises, there are really kind of three levels of competition in what I kind of call Katamari Royale. So for those of you that aren't familiar with the, the, the hybrid franchise that I'm kind of composing there, it's Katamari Damacy, which is a really fun, kind of very japanese game from Nemco Bandai, where you're a little ball and you roll up stuff in the world and you complete a level when you've rolled everything up and, and hit a certain score, if I remember correctly. And then the other one, of course, is any of the Battle Royale games, let's say Fortnite. And gaming right now is going through its own Katamari process. There's consolidation happening and it's happening at a publisher level, you know, to draw on a European influence, I point to Embracer. I think they've done an incredible job using their their very successful IPO and a number of different sources of capital to bring a number of different companies together. You know, there's still a lot of work to do on the integration and operation side of things, but the ambition is, is correct. Then there's the platform level where I think Microsoft might have a slight lead right now with the Activision Blizzard announcement. And then before that, the Bethesda announcement, you know, they are, the platform level is just consolidating IP, bringing studios internal, uh, really to power subscription offerings, right? Like Game Pass. And then there's an ecosystem level, which is even above that, which I think speaks to business models and devices. And, uh, you know, it's perhaps the closest thing we can, we could say would be the metaverse we, we prefer to refer to the metaverse as more of a multiverse but there it's really a battle between centralization and decentralization and which all of which is to say getting back to your question that there's just incredible push for consolidation right now but 
you know, I think just to kind of frame things a little bit on maybe founders should have more hope, more ambition. You know, the, the private markets have more capital than they've ever had before. There's more, more support for innovation than ever. But most importantly, the audience is bigger than it's ever been, right? Like gaming for Gen Z is an activity that 75 to 80% of them do, right? For Gen X, it's closer to like 30 to 40%. And that's really just Western countries, right? Like Europe, North America. If you zoom out on the world and you start to think about emerging markets, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, India, China, like there are enormous countries that are moving down this curve so quickly. And also, you know, I kind of stumbled into the stat just by trying to frame how big does gaming get? You know, 30% of the world today was born before gaming was invented, which is to say that like members of the silent generation are not playing you know, the new PlayStation 5. So just by working through the changes in demographics, right, over the next 20 years, gaming is going to grow three to five X. So I share, I share your passion, you know, like, I think this category is enormous. It is only getting bigger. And on a demographics basis alone, we're talking huge, huge growth. Yeah. That's not even taking into account innovation. I think founders should be hungry. They should be passionate. They should be fearless. I think consolidation is going to happen. Uh, it's happening at those three levels. I think any chance that people have to push and grow, they should. I, I think one of your sub points, your question had a lot of nuance to it. Hopefully I'm not going too deep, too long. But right now, a lot of the, the drivers of consolidation do not reflect the global diversity of game development and talent, but more specifically the audiences themselves. And I, I, I do think we need to see more of that. I, I would love to see more European companies operating at at the, the scale that we're talking about. I, I think the talent is sure, certainly there. I'd love to see more companies rise in Africa, you know, as well. India, I think that's starting to happen. So I think there's great potential on all those fronts. Yeah, for sure. It isn't like something that happened in the recent years, but at least for me, when thinking about market size and like gaming audience who are playing games, I think the definition of consuming a game is changing so much to encompass all sorts of video format gaming where you're just watching gameplay on youtube and that that's the the generation that we're we're moving towards who are going to be the consumers of this ip that games industry is creating so it's it is definitely amazing times yeah indeed out of curiosity you know there are it does feel like there are these regional differences on um on how big companies push to grow before they have an exit or I guess how much they fundraise, things like that. Are you starting to see that change in, in the areas that you're focused on? Like I'm not seeing founders come to me and pitch Embracer. <laughs> like that's, that doesn't come in. Like I, I'd, I'd really love to hear more like that because I think they're onto something different, at least that doesn't come up that often. Just, you know, thinking about like, hey, that's that's actually massive out of the, like out of the, hey, this is where we're gunning for versus like, oh yeah, we have this game in soft launch, this casual mobile title. I think there's a vast difference in pitching those. And I'm, I'm kind of fascinated in like, if, if somebody would come and pitch me the embracer, like what is behind their thought pattern there? Could they make it work? They're not going to be building the embracer that is existing now. It's going to look different. Right. So like very fascinating stuff. Yeah, I agree with you on that. There, there is a difference between pitching a project and pitching a company, I would say. 
Yeah. I, I, that's one thing I've definitely seen manifest in, in, in the pitches we've received. It's different than being an operator where you can kind of more explicitly or implicitly articulate what good looks like for a green light pitch, right? But with venture, there's definitely a lot of pro- appeals for project financing. And I don't know how you feel about this, but in my mind, project financing is very important. It is one of the key drivers of innovation in gaming, but it, it has very different success criteria than venture investing. And on to the next one. This was a very interesting clip from my discussion with Alexander Bergenthal, the co-founder and CEO of Loot Locker. We talked about both of us having entrepreneurial backgrounds when we were growing up. I wanted to actually ask about one thing there, because like this really relates to my background as well, is this kind of entrepreneurial family. Like from my mother's side, like there was everybody was an entrepreneur uh, when I was growing up. So I basically was like grown up like yeah. between people who are just, you know, doing doing what they love, building businesses. So there was like a this kind of like glass, I would say cutting industry in mm-hmm. where I grew up in Vasa, where where the family business was booming until the late 90s when it all crashed uh, with the, the Soviet market so I'm sort of going away. But I, I still you know, go back to kind of that heritage of thinking about like how they operated, how was the, the mindset and how much they loved that thing. How, how do you think, why does it matter that the family had the entrepreneurial background? I think you need to see someone do it to want to, to see that as possible. I think it's uh, like you said, it's a mindset. You need mm-hmm. to be able to take that risk and have that in your, in your mind that like you can figure these things out and that not everything has to go to plan and that there has to have, you know, these set blocks to do something. It's very much about like, Oh yeah, I can do this myself. And that if you, if you have that, then you're more likely probably to see a problem and be like, wait, can I fix this, my problem myself, or could I do this myself? You know, I, I didn't have like decades of years, uh, decades of experience in the games industry, but I was like, I see an opportunity here. I know this space, which is winter sports um, really well. Can I build this game? Like, can I meet, find the people to do it? And I just, you know, slowly piece, piece it together. And, and then obviously being able to talk to my brother who was an entrepreneur and get his advice and stuff like that, that also helps as well. Yeah, I, I, like I've been thinking that there's a form of comfort that comes from being surrounded by entrepreneurs like now i'm doing the elite game developers it's sort mm-hmm. of like the, the surroundings i i grew up with like that comfort of being around those kind of people yeah yeah no for sure and, and then once you do it once it's i think it's i find it very hard not to want to continue to do it and every time i've got an idea i, I like want to find a way to 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 see it through i had an idea of like a children's classical music poster and i was like it just i get obsessed with that idea and i'm just like thinking about it all the time until i'm like all right let me just find an artist and have them like pay them to make this thing for me because i'm not an artist but i want this thing to exist and so i just go out and find someone and do it in this next clip i talk with mika tammenkoski the co-founder and ceo of metacore the makers of merge mansion here's what mika had to say as advice for new gaming entrepreneurs. What is your advice for a team who is just getting started in making games, let's say in, in mobile? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure if I'm the right person to give uh, give anyone advice. But if I think, if I were to start this again, I would start from asking the team, what are our goals? What do we want to achieve? And making sure that we are aligned, uh, aligned with those. And then 
I think you have to find as a team, you have to find your own ways, uh, own, own voice and way how to do things. It doesn't make sense. There's a lot of uh, copying uh, going on in the in the games industry. We we not only copy uh, each other's game ideas, but we also copy ads. And that that doesn't make any sense. If you look at any other area of, of like entertainment industry that is more mature, that's not that's not the dynamics in play. So so how do you how do you like compete in that space? Like I said earlier, competition is good. It's like uh, if you're a professional athlete, you don't think what is my pre-ocean strategy or, or how I apply disruptive innovation, but you see what are my strengths and how do I compete against these other athletes? That's the approach that we should also be taking more and more of as the, the market is maturing. This next clip is from one of the best episodes from this year, where I discuss with the genius Are Groenmack, general partner at London Venture Partners. With Are, we talk about the roll-up model that Embracer and Stillfront have been following. Are has a lot of perspectives on so many things, so I really want you to go back to this episode from this spring and have a listen. But here's the clip. I wanted to ask you, because you've had experience of going through these big companies. When you look at the way that Embracer, Stillfront, give this autonomy and independence to the studios that they have, what are your thoughts on that model working? I think it's very, very difficult. I don't sort of envy any of the people who are working with any of those models, because I, I just don't see that there's any perfect model. There's no like really good one. So for example, EA always gets a lot of heat for heavy-handed integration of teams. And I mean, I have been part of a team that was integrated by EA and I've seen the, the advice they gave us when they bought the company and it was really solid advice. It was really good. I saw how they supported me to go to Japan, how they signed off the budgets and how they supported what I was doing there. And it was really good. It was really whatever I wanted, just looking for ways to support me, ready to send people down to help me and so on. And my team, to use that as an example, stayed very sort of playfish. For my, my team, it was very important that we remain the playfish team, that we were employed by playfish, that we were... You know, our name cards were Playfish, that we used our Playfish email and so on. And EA accepted most of that and it wasn't really any problem. But then over time, I also recognized that as I expanded that team, I think a lot of people expected to come to EA to learn. They expected to come to a university because EA is kind of known as to be a university. And they were expecting to come in and be shown you know, frameworks, systems, tools that were more advanced than what you would find in definitely in startups, but also in, in most Japanese companies. So they were kind of expecting to be supported in that way. And when I, in the last sort of big phase of my work at EA, I was really transitioning the team into EA because Playfish had been closed in most locations and we were starting to be one of the few remaining teams and mobile had reorged. And we had certain challenges in our studio with a game we had that where we ended up doing too much crunch and we missed our targets. Uh, so we were also asking for help. And, you know, I was able to connect with EA Sports and they started sending down people based on what I was requesting. So they sent down the development director. They sent down a technical director and, you know, very slowly, very carefully started to figure out what we were doing, where they thought there was room for improvement, slowly started introducing some of their tools and so on. 
And it was a process that my team really enjoyed. And they really felt, I think many of them felt that finally we were delivering on the promise. I've seen something similar too in my job at Gumi when I took over, you know, 11 studios in Europe and North America, where you had all these teams that have been spun up at the same time. And they were all sort of scrambling and wondering why there wasn't more support, why there wasn't more templates, more systems, more set process for doing things basically stuff they could lean on and that was one of my big challenges was that you know there wasn't any support like that and i had to try to build it as we were running so i've kind of seen that side you know i've seen the side where teams and people expect a large company to offer you a lot of tools and things so that you can lean on things and and yeah lean on things to 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 make your life a little bit easier and then on the other side you know you can also definitely see when all that goes a little bit wrong it gets more difficult to be visionary in a large company also you know it becomes all very numbers driven very very budget driven which is hard to be sort of religious about in the way you can be in a startup and it definitely gets you know political much quicker you know because the size is much bigger and you need to spend a lot more time selling to to the headquarter you know of course as an as a as a founder you're also spending a lot of time selling to investors so there's not ultimately all that different but but yeah so, so i see that side and i, I see the side, i see the desire also on the other side to Leave it very lean, not integrate, just let the teams do what they want to do. But I guess, you know, the question is when you start struggling in that structure, what is the expectation of the holding company and what is the expectation of the teams? Will there be a lot of understanding if you just close down teams that you didn't sort of try to help? So I I, I don't know. I, I just don't think there's any one perfect model. With Asper Malte Sönengard, the co-founder and CEO of Tactile Games, we talk about how they make games at Tactile, how teams make decisions, and how new games get a chance to be put into production. Do you ever think about like that there could be a way to actually like have more like frameworks decision for decisions, or is it very much like the teams can make their own call? and you basically give them that freedom how, how much do you think about that that independent team model like is it like de facto for you so one one thing that i think is often neglected when you talk about when teams and independent decisions and so on is there's a huge difference between doing a new project developing a new ip and a, and a new game versus being in live ops on an existing games and the people that might do extremely well in one context might not do so well in the other context. So that that is one of the things, especially when we grow as a company, seeing like, okay, moving this person, which is freaking awesome in, in a live-up setting, then moving them in, 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 in a setting where you know, we build and then we test and then if it doesn't work, we throw everything away again. It, it, it can be, it's a very different psychological profile you have to have as an individual to to embrace that process. So that's, that's one thing to be aware of when, when you have these self-managing teams that 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 you, you need to you need to set the team that appreciates the process that and then also I think there needs to be a clear vision of of the products. And in our case, it's it's been more or less the same team that's been doing all our games. Me myself being part of it, my uh, co-founder being part of it, and a couple of other key people being part of it. We have grown that team you know, a bit, of course, since we we started. The, but it's basically been the same team that's been doing the project inception. Especially in the current markets, it's very hard to 
expect people to come up with something that is both fun and hits the perfect slot in 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 the market mix and can be also has has good CPIs and whatnot. It's a lot to put on 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 a small team. So I think there needs to be some high level, at least in our case, some high level direction. This is what we're gonna try, and this is this is uh, the market we wanna go after, and this is like the concept high level we wanna go for. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's like just double clicking on this idea. If there are game concepts that are originating from inside the organization that people are excited about. Do you ever think about like these kind of game jams? Does it make sense for a company like Tactile to, to, to set up small teams at all? Or like if you have the centralized new initiative team, no, it would be I great mean, that, to hear your thoughts on that. That's not how I think about it. I think about us as doing a very relatively limited genre of things. And you can do that. And we're going to do that extremely well. And then it actually when you lock down this to this is our design space, then there's still a lot of creativity you can put on top of that. I think one of the, so one, one way to answer this question is also back in the days when we were a small company and especially that's also one thing that people don't talk about that much, but when you are bootstrapping a company, maybe not paying market salaries, then it's also, you can't just recruit anyone you want. So you, you kind of have to make compromises. And one of the compromises I think we did early on was that, some of the people we hired, especially on, on, on the programming side, they didn't really care much for the type of games we were doing. Whereas, and eventually these people has left the company to other things. So that's, that's awesome for them. But if you joined, let's say, Tactile five years ago, it was pretty clear what we were going to be doing. So if you didn't want to do a casual puzzle, then probably we're not the company for you. So that also takes away some of that expectations that some employees might have of, you know, we work on this project, but then the next project is going to be this awesome uh, adventure RPG. That's that's not going to happen because it doesn't make sense from from a high level business or creative perspective. We want to be the best at what we do. We need to continue focusing on that one thing. And then there's still multiple iterations of how how we can be better, different angles of how we can be better at what we're already doing. I had Sophie Wu on the podcast this fall, and we talked about feedback sharing in startups. I want to hear Sophie's thoughts on how people can make sure that feedback is well-received and acted upon. I actually think one of the components for me, which is interesting, like if you get to the point where feedback giving is flowing and it's happening and people are taking in the feedback, but how to follow through with reacting and making changes when you are receiving feedback? What are the things that you've seen work really well there? Of course, every, for example, positive feedback, everyone will take it well, right? Sure. <laughs> we are talking here about, I think, particularly the negative feedback, which is first never easy to deliver and never easy to receive. So first, I think it's about, again, creating habits. So it, it's not something awkward that you receive once every six months and become so painful that you don't want to think of it ever again. But it's like, like I don't know, eating your breakfast in the morning. It's like, okay, negative feedback is part of my life. And it's uh, improvement feedback, right? In the end, it's to help me get better. Anyone in a position to give feedback, make it regular, make it consistent, make it frequent, and don't make it a big deal of it. So I think I believe a lot in creating rituals. What what it helps psychologically when first time, because there's also people coming with history and legacy where they receive negative feedback in a 
not so elegant way, right? It came unexpected, not delivered in a very, I would say, comfortable way because many managers are very uncomfortable giving negative feedback. So you feel uncomfortable receiving it as well. So first, a repair of the past negative experiences by recreating new experiences. So it, it starts first, like deliver in a proper way a negative feedback, announce it. So in the next one-on-one, -on -one, I'll start to give feedback. So the person has one week. So before you start to do it unannounced, announce how you want to give feedback to the person. So they know that when you have one-on-one -on -one with their manager, they are expected to receive feedback positive or negative feedback that's and then also create the you know the routine around it and the other thing is i found for the hardest feedback especially when i had it with my leads it was really hard conversation it was conversation at the level are you still motivated to do the work we're doing here should we continue and i didn't feel that doing it over an online uh, zoom call like the typical meeting would be appropriate so i said like hey uh, I like to talk about important things that are quite uh, kind of hard questions. I would like to go for a walk on that day and we will talk about those topic. I'm not announcing, of course, the, the, the depth of, of the conversation, but uh, the themes. So then we go in a different setting that is a bit more uh, relaxed. You know, we walk, we are in nature. It feels like a casual uh, conversation. And then I can bring up the things that are difficult. We are in a different setting where you react differently to things. So that, that has been helpful. And we can look at each other, I, you know, eye to eye and, and really go deep. It's like, what, what is at stake? So uh, again, delivering a negative feedback is like when especially it was conversation, like, should we continue together? I share my level of stress. I share like really looking at the person in the eyes and say, I feel lonely in this position where I have so much to do and I don't feel supported. And I feel I need to convince you to even work with me and, and do the work. I just can't do this alone. I, I need people who will help me lead whatever problem we have at the moment. I, I, I can't do this. And so they understand the, the level of pressure that is on my shoulder. Do they want to help or do they want to keep being the burden as well. And so for some people, it was really a game changer where they completely switched the mindset and it has resolved actually a lot of the situation. So again, to summarize back to this question, because there are several layers of how to give and receive feedback. I think for regular feedback, create the routine around it, announce it, that it's a place that you will give or receive feedback and make it a habit where it's no big deal, right? It's not something that would be heavy or horrible. And second, I think rule that has worked quite well for me is like always remember to give as many and, and even more positive feedback when you give also negative feedback. I'm not talking here about the sandwich, uh, feedback sandwich, but really remember to complement and acknowledge the good work of people when you also give negative feedback. So they don't just remember that they only have things to improve and feel, you know, bad about themselves. And, and at last, when it comes to really hard conversation, like to the level, like deal breaker conversation, I would be creative in finding a different setting to have a conversation and talk things really open heart. This episode from this fall was such a great one to put together. It's with Togo Takokallio, the game designer of Heyday, Boom Beach and Brawl Stars. In this discussion with Togo, we talked about creating great games and how 
teams can discover these games as they're developing a concept together in a small team. Think about like a concept of, hey, is there a game that you specifically want to build that you know really well or that you know what needs to be built next versus something that is iterative from something that is already out there? Do you have thoughts about like which one of those approaches can it be iterative? Can it be or should it more be about like this? Hey, we start from zero and we come up with a cool, totally innovative thing. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's like two, at least generally speaking, there's like two, two at least two different ways to think about it. Like one is to seeing an opportunity and seeing a lot of reference games and somehow like perfecting what's already there. And I think that type of team structure probably can be very different than from a more like an inno- innovation team that is trying to do something else. And I think the approach is to development in those two, two different extreme versions probably should be very different as well. So in, if I kind of talk more about the exploration, explorative development side, I think there you need some guts, like in a sense to really mm. feel like this in my head, it plays out nicely. You kind of prototype in your head and, and you mm. feel like, this could be working and then you need some boldness to push forward and test it out and be brutal about it and i think that is harder to have like if, if you are more like exploring a new new stuff i think it is more important there's like maybe few vision holders that are, are really sharing the vision of the of the product and willing to make those bets and, and push it forward and see if this this idea that's kind of all only in your head or only on a paper would it will it work out and but if you are more like doing an established genre and just perfecting what out there i think the development pipeline and all like the team structure and everything can be quite different and then it's more about building building already what you know and then iterating on top of that and like making perfect perfecting it but like if you're truly doing something new i think you can't just get it by iteration you need to have this kind of bold gutsy bets and try them out and of course like usually what what i've seen like what happens i i had this kind of reference or comparison to to being in a jungle like you're adventuring and you have like a vague idea where to go and you have kind of vision what you want to do there but in practice like once you start the journey usually like you you notice that certain things that you were thinking about they didn't work as you wanted or, or you were thinking and then you need to take that input and revisit the whole whole path to the kind of whatever your goal is and uh, but kind of keep at the same time open-minded in terms of is this actually working what I'm thinking, but like also being gutsy on the fact that it is something new and we need to push a bit farther because there's no like a clear reference out there that we can compare to or iterate. So kind of combination of open-mindedness and then this conviction, conv- this pushing forward mentality that it will work out in the end. Let's just make it, make it work. <laughs> Yeah, do you, do you think that like, you know, you're in, you're in the jungle and you see these paths where you're going down a path, which will lead you to maybe some answers on like, if this path will lead to, to a great place or not? Do you think that before you start that path, how much can you do the work in inside your head yeah, about yeah. these pathways? Like, do you think that like people who are better at knowing early on to not <laughs> jump on the path? are going to be more successful or is there always like a prototyping phase which you need to go through to reveal things? Yeah, yeah, I would definitely think there needs to be a prototyping phase to prove it. But I think you can win a lot and save a lot of these dead ends and kind of avoid the dead ends if you have a good plan 
And uh, so, yeah, I think good designers in my mind, they can kill already a lot of bad ideas in their head, like prototype already in their head so that they know, okay, this, this stuff we shouldn't do. This, this, there's sort of already problems here. But I think even the best designers, I don't think they can see everything. And, and every designer, I feel like there needs to have a question marks in their head that they want to get validated by the prototype and kind of prioritizing those question marks and building a prototype that will validate their concerns or kind of prove if the starting point and if the vision, can it work? <laughs> like you need to prove those certain steps. And that's, that's super, I think, important and valuable, but definitely you can kill a lot of ideas and f- try to find the bet- best path already in your mind. And I think that's very important in mm. avoiding those mistakes and wasting time. And as the final highlight of this episode, I had Jenny Xu, the co-founder and CEO of Talofa Games, on the podcast recently. And we talked about how, as a first-time founder, she has learned to hire people and to manage people. How did you start picking up hiring skills and team building skills, like besides knowing like values are now very effective? Like because you had earlier projects where you were like in your career where you had the opportunity to pick up skills like you know at google and network how did those help you in becoming a manager i think that being on my own <laughs> working at games for a long time definitely didn't help me learn how to be on a team much so it was like being at those bigger companies where i saw the team building aspects come into play and honestly i stole a lot of things that i saw like on my various teams where yeah, my Google team would have like a Friday show and tell or like a Friday, like shout out moment. So I took that and I was like, let's use that. And Mm -hmm. I've also like had a lot of, I've learned a lot from even sitting in on my friends' companies meetings where I'd be on a fly on the wall and see how they run their companies. So I had the privilege of doing that with my friend, Sam at Butterscotch. They made Levelhead and Crashlands. And I just sat in on their I think weekly scrum. So I sat there and watched as Sam like ran the meetings. So that's actually where I, I learned to imitate a lot of things that he did and figured out like what was working. So that helped. And then working on these teams, like at network, for example, like I was a gameplay engineer on an engineering team. So it's very different from being a CEO and also very different from managing, but I saw how my like the questions that I'd get asked for one-on-ones, like I'd write them down, like, oh, this seems like a good question. And I learned a lot from that experience in terms of like, what did I find that made me feel heard? And what did they do to like really empower me? And I used a lot of those in terms of my, the way I run my team. Like, for example, my manager at Google was very, uh, he was like my friend. Like he (laughs) asked me about like my personal life, asked me like what I like to do. And asked to like do things together. So even outside of work, so I saw that, yeah, you can actually be friends with your manager, obviously with some, some boundaries, but I liked the, the feeling of ease that I had with him. And that's where I, I wanted to be like that more servant leadership style. Like I'm here to help you. Like we're on the same side. So yeah, I'd say between like sitting in people's actual meetings, like having experience mm. working on bigger companies and also just like over time my mentors also helped me because they'll like nitpick at stuff that I do now but yeah. those really helped because you don't know I didn't know what it meant to be a good leader when I started yeah. yeah I haven't heard of this like that you actually go and sit down and watch somebody else run their company that's really amazing idea very cool 
and you can do it sort of like the other way that then they come and and see how you operate and you're learning from both yeah it's just an external appraisal in a way like having somebody Mm. come in i think is just as helpful as somebody you going into somewhere else because if somebody comes in and you change your behavior to like be more like confident or more transparent or something then there's probably something wrong but if you're just like running the company as you usually do even if somebody is there and they can give you feedback then i think you'll just see a lot more of your blind spots all right everybody that's it for 2022 I want to thank all the people out there who've been listening to the podcast and supporting me on this journey. Uh, I'm going to take a break now for a few months and I'll be back with new episodes in March of 2023, which will be a new spring batch of great founder and investor discussions. In the meantime, I wish you all happy holidays. And I'll see you at the conferences early next year. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.